and welcome to the Sock Valley Spotlight Podcast, where we shine a light on the people and places of the beautiful Sock Valley. In each episode, we highlight the hidden gems and untold stories of local businesses, community leaders, and the people that call the Sock Valley home. I'm your host, Drew Williams, and today I'm joined by Danny Langloss, who's a city planner of Dixon. Danny, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Pastor. I appreciate having me. Absolutely. Hey, can you just give us a quick snapshot? If people don't know you already, who are you? Who do you love? Give us a quick intro. Yeah, my name is Danny Langloss. Uh, I've lived in Dixon since 1996. Uh, married my wife, Valerie, and uh, have three kids. I have Braden and Lexi, who are a little older, and Theo, who just turned two years old. So I always say I bleed purple. I love the Sauk Valley. I love Dixon. And... Um, yeah, it's just a, it, it's a great community. Awesome. Can you give us maybe a quick kind of just journey of the story of Danny? You can go back as far as you want, but kind of what what were the things that brought you through? Because uh, you've spent quite a career in law enforcement as well, and then now serving as city planner in addition to that. And so what's kind of the journey that has taken you to where you are now? Yeah, so ever since I was eight or nine years old, I knew I wanted to be a police officer. It was a calling. And so the things I did through my teenage years into college were to prepare me to do that. And um, I grew up in Peoria Heights, Illinois, which is um, kind of central Illinois. Mm. And in policing, you, you know, you, you tested a lot of different places because the civil service process now, there's a lot less applicants, but before you know, there's a lot more applicants. When I tested at Dixon, I think there were 65 or 70 applicants. And then here recently, we just had like five applicants. Yeah, it's and gone down a lot I've, I, across industries, I've heard. Yeah, it has. I mean, it's police, it's fire. And so I tested in Peoria, um, you know, passed that test, uh, did my internship there, tested Peoria County, uh, tested up in this region, had some connections up here and um, end up getting hired by Dixon right away. And I didn't really have any intention of staying here. I actually got called by Peoria and offered a job there right when I was getting out of the academy. But I didn't feel right about that. I'm like, well, I signed a contract. I'm going to stay a couple of years. And then, you know, things. And that was in the late 90s. That was, yeah, 1996. Okay. And, you know, I just, uh, I was about ready to turn 22 when I got hired. So I was, you know, 21 years old and then came out. First couple of years within the department were were a little rocky, um, some road bumps, struggled a little bit, had a had a great mentor that helped me through that. And then I got an opportunity that that you just didn't see coming and uh, it kind of changed the trajectory of my career. And then things kind of took off from there. Hmm. Um, I went into investigations, end up getting promoted to sergeant about five years in and then an opportunity that I never dreamed would would come. Um, I got tapped on the shoulder, competed, and became the police chief in 2008. Wow! So, so I started in that role, um, you know, walk through and and help lead us back from the Rita Cronwall embezzlement. Uh, we were able to recover a lot of our money, regain community trust, trust of our people, professionalize every aspect of of city government over there. We became a city manager, form of government. We'd put together an incredible team. So many people did so many incredible things during that time. And then I went back to be the police chief. And then about six or seven years ago, um, just had had some more challenges within the city, within city leadership, and got tapped on the shoulder again and decided to make the transition to city manager. And I've been the city manager since then. Okay. So 
talk to me a little bit about, cause I, I think the, the Rita Crumble, um, period of time is probably the one that stands out the most in locals minds as kind of a time when law enforcement city, the nation was looking at this area, you know, there's a documentary on Hulu about it kind of stuff. What are some of the things that stand out to you during that time of like when you were in the middle of it, did you know that this was going to be a potentially career defining moment? Yeah, I mean, so a career defining, a career ending. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, it's funny. I was sitting at my desk. I was the police chief. It was, uh, I believe it was April 2012. And Andrea Dobransky, the special agent in charge of the FBI, um, came to the PD. Um, her, you know, they said she was there, wanted to see me. No big deal. I knew her. I was the president of the Northwest Executive. So I knew a lot of the law enforcement leaders in the area. And, so she came up and she's like, you mind if I close the door? And I was like, you know, and then, and then you're like, I don't think I did anything. The FBI would be investigating me for was, you know what I mean? Because it was just so out of the, in your head. I'm like, Oh, did I do anything? I know. Right. Like you're sitting there and I think that's just, you know, human nature. But at any rate, she says, you know, I'm really sorry. I haven't been able to talk to you about this before. We've got a good relationship. I trust you, but I just, I just couldn't. She goes, but we've been investigating your comptroller for the last six months. Wow. And we have agents at City Hall right now executing a search warrant. And at the time, they kind of slow rolled like how much money, you know, it, she kind of led me to believe it was like several hundred thousand dollars. And I'm like, holy cow, like I knew this is bad. We call it an ape. It's an acute political emergency. Yeah. It's like right away, it's like, you know, we've got, you know, trust brand relationship issues that are going to happen because, you know, within our own team, you know, community wise, like this is, right. this is going to be bad. Um, and you're just like, wow, because, you know, it's funny, we'd been struggling financially, but everybody in the region had been struggling financially. So, you know, and as the police chief, I didn't, you know, run finances yeah. and, and all those things. Well, you, you assume the people in the position are doing their job. Yeah. Yeah. And she, you know, she was one of the most trusted and respected people in wow. our city government. She'd been there since she was an intern in high school and, you know, she was charismatic, friendly, engaging, always made you feel good about yourself. Um, she was Johnny on the spot. Like if you needed something, she knew the answer. I mean, essentially we were a commission form of government, so we didn't have a city administrator or city manager, but she was essentially the city manager. Yeah. She ran the place that what Rita said kind of went. Yeah. Um, but she was a master at earning trust, developing relationships. Wow. You know, I often refer to her now as a sociopath, because if you're able to do that with people you care about and trust, and I didn't know her super well, I had interactions with her, but the way she portrayed some people that, that had amazing relationship with her is just crazy. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the, the fact that it's, you know, it's not just people you don't know it's people that you work alongside with every day It's people that you've, you know, ostensibly been to their birthday parties, you know, had them over for a cookout at your house kind of stuff. And yet still being able to, uh, keep a very clear, uh, compartment in your life where you're secretly doing all this other stuff. Well, yeah, knowing that, you know, eventually this is going to come out. I mean, the amount of money, you know, she stole $54 million over 20 years and really ramped it up at the end. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, she was really close to some of these people. And you talk about amazing people, yeah. you know, and, and she just 
destroyed a lot of people's lives. Yeah. You know, I mean, on top of what the community impact and stuff was, I can't understate how important that was. But you just think about individually to be betrayed like that and to have so many years of service tarnished because of somebody's actions like this, you know. And then quickly we found ourselves in the, you know, local, regional, state, national spotlight. Yeah. Do you feel like that was maybe one of the most challenging times during your time in law enforcement? Oh, yeah. No, it, it definitely was. I've had a few really challenging times in my career, but but that one certainly was has to be the biggest challenge because, you know, it's funny, the mayor had approached me and asked me to join a leadership team to help rebuild public trust and confidence, to help rebuild pub, uh, our trust and confidence with our team members and to help, you know, I said, professionalize every aspect of city government. And as I was thinking about that, I, I reached out to several mentors. I'm big on, you know, surround yourself with amazing people, right? Yeah. You can never have too many good people around you. And uh, to a person, um, well, all, all but one of them told me I was absolutely crazy. Like this does no good for you. And if this doesn't go well, your career will be over here. Wow. You know, and like, I, I didn't care that it was going to do good for me, but you know, one of the things that kind of for me, you know, cause me, like all the other city employees, like you didn't want to like walk in anywhere. Like you got your head down, you're embarrassed. You feel like this is a representation of you. Yeah. And then just something inside of me just kind of clicked. I'm like, this, this has nothing to do with me. Hmm. This is no representation of me or anybody else. And then, so I started proactively messaging with our team, you hold your head high. You did nothing wrong. Wow. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, now it's, leadership excellence law number 12 and it's when all else fails lead yeah and so i love dixon and i, I love the people there i love the community i love this region and somebody needed to lead and so it was just time to step forward and to lead and to do it the way i know how to do it and that is to build a great team mm. of people with diverse backgrounds and expertise and to create an environment where their voices can be heard and you can really gel around a common vision and purpose. And that was the rebuild of Dixon and this this great community. And, you know, I'm grateful to have been in that spot. Yeah. What do you what tips would you give to someone from your experience of working to rebuild trust? Because like, I mean, there's so many axioms and, you know, little truisms about trust and when it's broken and how hard it is to rebuild it. But I mean, you all, like you said, anyone from city government or a city employee felt like the lack of trust, the, the disappointment, the outrage was directed at all of them because of the one person's, you know, uh, involvement in this. And so how do you come back from that to rebuild trust? Yeah, it's so hard because, you know, all the, the feelings that community members were having were directing it at the council and, and really at just anybody affiliated with the city government were the same feelings that we had, except they were very personal because yeah. this was our team. This is our city family. You know, I, I think first and foremost, it's important to show a change in leadership. And that's why, you know, Mayor Burke You know, I just happened to be the one he tapped on the shoulder. The police department had uh, a very strong brand, a ton of trust. We have a great, great team. We continue to have a great team there. And, you know, we were 
we were the most visible aspect of government. So the first thing to say, things have changed. Uh, people who are kind of running the show now are different than what was running the show before. Yeah. The second thing is absolute transparency. Hmm. Like you just have to be so vulnerable, so open, and you have to just be able to put it out there. You have to be able to say, hey, there was a massive failure. There, there were controls in place, but there was a massive, massive failure here. And, and you got to be able to take the hits. You know, the, the first council meeting, the mayor, you know, made a statement and um, kind of just to bring where are things at, what do we know, what are we going to do, what steps are we going to take, what's going to be different. And then you just got to sit there and take the beat. You just got to sit there and listen to people who are very angry and who who look at you as the cause, the reason. Yeah. You know, people got to have that. And and you get it right. Like the captain's got to go down with the ship type situation. And so I think, like I said, change in leadership, uh, transparency and then proactive communication, mm. communicate, 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 even the little things that you're doing to move forward. Mm. And then you got to create a vision. You got to create a vision that people can rally around that ties into emotion. You know, and one of the things with that, we talked about the, you know, professionalizing every aspect of city government, but we also talked about, we're going to go out and we're going to go after our money and we're going to get your money back. Yeah. And, you know, we executed that consistently over time. And then the other thing that was really important, especially being a local government is, you know, we went and sat with Sock Valley Media's editorial board and we were just wide open with them. Yeah. Wide open about, you know, the mayor explained his choice and why he'd tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to, you know, to take a leadership role and to, you know, the only way I know how to do that is to create a team. Right. right. And, um, they saw that they saw that change and we were wide open with them. And that began to help because early on, you know, all the media attention was negative. Yeah. But then they finally started saying, Hey, these guys are really making changes and it's our job to communicate those changes to the community. Mm. And so slowly over time, you start to build trust back. It is a very, it was a very, very slow build. And then I think, you know, couldn't really start to crystallize over until, you know, the new city council was elected. Yeah. So you had several council members, you know, step away, obviously not run. He had a new council. Um, you had, by that time, you had some new leadership. You know, we'd ran a committee. You know, I was only in that role for, I don't know, it might have been 18 months. Um, and I was excited to get back to the police department. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and then you keep laying it on. The, 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 the problem, Pastor, is that Government is the most feared and the least trusted organization in our country. Mm. And so when you have something like this happen, um, it just reinforces that yeah. to a whole nother level. Yeah, you're already playing from a disadvantage. You're already playing from uh, decades of uh, odds stacked against your favor. So that, I mean, it's 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 an, an unfortunate reality that, you know, uh, one of the good ones is a phrase that they will append to a politician or to a law enforcement officer or something like that, which means that in many people's minds, the rest aren't. Yes. <laughs> you must be one of 
the good ones instead of uh, having a, a more positive kind of view of the the institution as a whole, which is which is really really difficult. But no, I appreciate. It. I think that's that's such helpful, even just in in distilling it into uh, steps, you know, because I think everyone has experienced or will experience times with a breach of trust that was either caused by themselves or they're stepping into the place of having to rebuild trust, whether it's just in their family, whether it's in a school environment or a work environment. Um, and so being able to kind of reiterate uh, the things that got uh, the situation going in there is usually a lack of transparency, a lack of communication, a lack of uh, team dynamics. It's usually people working in isolation. And so uh, upending those things is the solution to building back trust. What do you think, um, to look at the other side of the coin now, uh, during your time in law enforcement, what was one of the, one of the seasons of, of joy for you or one of the things that you look back and really proud of? Yeah, you know, there's a couple things that, um, that, that stick out. I mean, first and foremost, just the culture that we created and the incredible team that we put together. I mean, the, the bench there is deep. We're still seeing it today. Very progressive, very innovative. I'll talk about the X factor of winning cultures and championship teams is purpose-driven ownership. And you see that there day in and day out. And the fact we were able to create that and really change the shift from traditional arrest, arrest, arrest policing to a full service community policing organization. And I got to give a ton of credit for Chief Gary Capitelli, who was my predecessor, because that all began under him. Mm. And then you take that over and then you continue to add layers to that. So there, there's two things in my career that really stand out that I'm just incredibly proud of. The first is helping with the creation of Aaron's Law. Mm. So as a, as a detective... I became highly specialized in cases of child sexual abuse. I was mm -hmm. part of our first child protection team. We created Shining Star Children's Center. Yeah. And over the years, you know, I'd interviewed over 150 kids, three to 13 years old, put away a ton of pedophiles. And but over the years, you saw that oftentimes the child wasn't believed. Oftentimes you know, the family would turn against the child and there was mm. this lack of awareness and lack of prevention. And so when I became police chief, I, I often say like the, the police chief, that that wasn't a destination. It was a new beginning. Mm. Right. Oftentimes people think they've made it. The truth yeah. was when I became police chief in 2008, I was the least experienced police chief in, in the in the world. Right. Because yeah. I'm brand new. But the badge open door opens doors, our positions, our our titles pastor opens doors. It's sure. what you do with that in service of other people. It's not a status thing. Right. And so we created a multi-year community awareness campaign, prevention campaign on child sexual abuse. And during that time, I met this brave, incredible woman, Erin Moran. She was in her low 20s. She came, she was a keynote speaker at a local conference we were hosting. And she talked about her abuse at the hands of her best friend's stepdad and at her, of her cousin and her vision for Aaron's law. Mm. And I went up and I talked to her and, you know, she wasn't getting anywhere with any of the um, elected officials. Right. You know, her vision for this law was age appropriate child sex abuse education from pre-K to 12th grade. Give people of uh, kids a voice because these are crimes of manipulation. Yeah. Right. Oftentimes, 
you know, children don't know a safe or unsafe touch, a safe or unsafe secret, who to tell to keep telling, right? That's, they're getting that from the pedophile who's grooming them. Right. And so we talked, uh, I ended up introducing her to Senator Tim Bivens. Uh, we got a state task force created. I was able to chair the Aaron's Law State Task Force. We brought together experts from all over the state. We're the first state in the country to have this law. And now I believe it's in it's in right around 40 states. Wow. And she's still on a crusade to get it in, in all of them. So good for her. That wow. was that was an amazing time. It was something that I'm incredibly proud to be part of. The number of kids who've come forward, who've stopped the abuse, who've protected other kids, you know, because men who abuse girls have an average of 19.8 victims. But men who abuse boys have an average of 150.2 victims because boys just don't tell. And um, and so when you when you empower a kid to come forward to tell and you're able to do the investigation and put this person behind bars, you're not just protecting that kid. You're protecting other kids, future victims. So that is that that's probably one of the things in a a close second. um, And it's it's awesome to have something that could be a, a, a close to that yeah. is we created the second program in the country that puts heroin addicts to treatment instead of jail. Mm. And so we, it's called the safe passage initiative. It still exists today. We put, I don't know, over 700 people to treatment. And in addition to that, we've helped 150 communities across the country create programs just like it. Wow. And, you know, I often say if law enforcement was a private organization, Right. If we weren't public funded yep. by tax dollars, we'd have gone bankrupt a long time ago because yeah. companies, you just can't do what doesn't work. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the, the work the men and women in law enforcement do day in and day out to risk their lives, to serve their communities, to deal with things that are unimaginable that most people will never see is absolutely phenomenal. But our tactics matter. And like arrest, arrest, arrest. If our jobs are to create a safer community. But when we're just arresting and not looking to root issues and causes of the problem, all we have is recidivism, mm-hmm. right? All we have is recidivism. So we're not really reducing or stopping crime. No, nope. nope. you're, you're, you're delaying their entry back into it. You, 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 you're putting them on a timeout, right? <laughs> Until they go back because they haven't actually gotten help or healing. Hmm. Absolutely. You know, addiction and mental illness are two of the biggest issues facing every community across the country. And so with the creation of Safe Passage and then creation of our crisis prevention team, we will really be able to be proactive, Yeah, you know, pre-arrest, pre-law enforcement contact, and really help change people's lives, change their families, show a whole new structure for, for their kids if they had children. And it's just had such a tremendous impact across our region and, and we see it across the country. So, I mean, those are two two of the things that, I'm absolutely proudest of and honored to have been part of. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Uh, um, I, I think that that is one of the things that I, I so appreciate as I hear more and more stories from this area is just how many incredible contributions to the country um, that Sauk Valley has has given, you know, uh, from the outside looking in, um, being a new local myself, you look at it and it's... It's a small rural community, you know, that that has a lot going for it. But you don't realize how much we have going for us until you start hearing these stories of of true, uh, like nationwide impact, which is just incredible. It's really incredible to, to, to know more of the things that come from this area. Um, 
I want to ask you a question that is going to be a risk of a whole podcast episode in itself because of your passion for leadership and just uh, interested in, in what has fueled your passion for leadership. Why do you would you say that leadership is something that everyone should study or is it only for a certain type of person? Yeah, that, that's a great that's a great uh, question. You know, it's funny. It, eight or nine years old when. I knew all I ever wanted to be was a police officer, and I saw the officers, and I saw them out and about, and I saw them in the cars, and I saw them, you know, flying down the streets with their lights and sirens on, and I got to know and understand what policing was. It turns out that what I was drawn to wasn't, at, at its core, at its root, wasn't policing, although I was incredibly drawn to policing, it was leadership, and so when you look at all of the complex problems facing our world today, you know, food insecurity, poverty, police community relations, uh, you look at the war in Ukraine, you look at what we went through with COVID, you look at, you know, problems facing small businesses with supply chains, rising costs, uh, you look at retention and employee recruitment. You know, you look at, you know, churches, you know, you come through COVID and people get disconnected. And, you know, how do we get people back in the doors who who hadn't been able to come for a while? Yeah. All of the issues facing our local community, regionally, state, nationally in the world will be solved by one thing, and that is leadership. And I do not believe that leaders are born. Leaders are made. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it starts with our heart and then is fueled through our mindset. And it's founded in service, you know, and and when we're in service to other people and and when we have a vision for a better way, a new way, solutions to these complex problems, and then we're able to uh, influence, unite, inspire, motivate, empower other people towards a common vision and purpose, there is nothing more powerful than that. So what you're describing really is something that uh, maybe finds its genesis, the spark in one person. But the only way leadership happens is when people lead together, right? Because you're, you're, you're giving this example of coming up with a, a vision that unifies a group mm-hmm. of people or a community. Um, because I think a lot of people, when they think of leadership or leader, they think in, in the singular. They think of a person who is charismatic or who has certain types of gifts or his who is able to uh, speak in front of a crowd, right, without getting too nervous. Um, and they they assume that a leader is the one who comes in and leads, um, which implies everyone else is just supposed to be a follower or a bystander. Um, but what you just described is, uh, I would almost describe it as a, a um, an environment of forward movement that we're invited to step into. Would that be a, a way to describe it? Yeah, I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. You know, I think the greatest leaders are the greatest followers. You know when to lead, you know when to follow. And there's mm. a concept based on a lot of reflection. I was not I was never a person that really looked backwards. It's probably because of all the trauma we see and experience in law enforcement. But when I made the transition from, from leading, right, and being in the thick of leading, which I still do, to sharing leadership and teaching leadership and keynote speaking and uh, consulting work, I had to really look backwards and analyze things. And one of the first frameworks that I created was under 
um, this philosophy of creating a culture of leadership, you know, whereby everybody in the organization is a leader, where everybody embraces formal or informal that they are a leader. And then that transitions into, through, through a lot of different things, this sense of purpose-driven ownership. And not ownership that's territorial, ownership that's collaborative. Mm. And, you know, so, so I believe we've got to start teaching leadership mindset, leadership philosophies, leadership com- uh, competence, leadership skills very early. And that that isn't for the few, right? That's for everybody within the organization. Because if everybody is willing to step up and lead when they need to, yeah, and if everybody is willing to step back and follow when that's more appropriate, hmm. your organization becomes unstoppable. Yeah. Do you feel that some of that is a return to uh, wisdom of our grandparents of, you know, uh, don't leave it for someone else. Step in when you need to. Like that that kind of like what maybe previous generations would just call good manners or common sense. Um, do you think that some of what you're describing is that? It sounds almost like that, like the, the purpose-driven ownership especially. Um, the way I've always thought of that is uh, if I'm walking down the hallway and I notice a candy wrapper in the corner, I can either say I'll let the janitor get to that or I can bend down and pick it up myself. Because, well, I want the hallway to look nice too. Whether it's my hallway or somewhere else that I'm just visiting, well, I can, I can contribute to this. And that seems to be a, a personality trait that has not been taught as much recently. Yeah, I, mean, I love the analogy there. I think that's a good example. Um, I think it's a good example. I I, you know, I define ownership as the extreme emotional and psychological commitment to the vision, goals, and mission of the organization, to our team members, to our customers, you know, and it, people are always looking to do better, to be better, to get 1% better, to add layers of greatness to their great organization, to their teams, to their own skills and their self. It's they do it because they choose to, not because they have to. And I often... Uh, to, to drive this home a little bit, I often ask the question to people, have you ever rented a house or an apartment? Right. And everybody raises their hand. Everybody's rented a house or an apartment at some point in time. And I said, when you rented a house or an apartment, did you ever think about finishing the basement? Did you ever think about changing, you know, the cabinets or redoing the kitchen? Did you ever think about, you know, adding on a deck? Right. Yeah. And people are like, no, why? No, that's, I was renting. This yeah. wasn't mine. And yeah. exactly, that's not what renters do. That's what owners do. Yeah, Owners are constantly looking for ways to maintain, to improve, to make better what it is that, that they have, right? And that is the power of ownership within organizations, within communities. Why is emotional commitment a necessary component of that? Yeah, it, you know, emotional commitment is, is everything because as human beings, we are emotional creatures. Mm. And when we become emotionally committed, emotionally atta- attached, when it that's what drives meaning for us, mm. then that's what pushes us in every different direction. You know, I saw something on um, uh, some marketing thing, and it was funny, like, you know, Coca-Cola isn't 
you know, when their marketing isn't selling Coca-Cola, right? Like they're selling the emotions that people feel. Yeah. That people want to feel. And they tie those emotions to Coca-Cola. Yep. And so we have to learn as leaders how to tap in to those emotions mm. that drive our team members. We've got to lead the whole person. We've got to know people holistically. Let's think about a compelling vision is that that vision drives emotions inside of people, which gets them connected and eventually gets them committed to why they're going to put their time and their effort, why they're going to choose in a world of so many possibilities and so many choices, why they're going to choose to grab on and, and be part of this mission and help push it forward. Yeah, no, I, that makes sense because it, it, it is one thing to, uh, paint a, a compelling, a compelling vision of a, a direction we're going. But if that isn't, um, emotionally attractive for people, then you just spend all your time trying to convince people it's a good idea rather than working together to make it happen. Um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Cause I think, I think the holistic, uh, approach of leadership is something that probably, um, has been missed, at least in, in my experience of, as I've grown as a leader as well, and been trained in different things. You know, we talk about how to come up with a vision statement, or you talk about, you know, how to, how to run a meeting or things like that. But you, you don't often talk about shepherding a person towards their preferred future, which would be kind of the closest thing that you've been describing of saying, um, we're trying to paint a picture of a preferred future for you even. And as the leader, I'm not acting as the hero for you. I'm trying to act as the guide to help you and help us step into that together. And 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 that's going to be a much uh, different experience than just someone who's trying to be a Pied Piper and shout loudest from the front of the line and con- try and convince people to follow them. That's a that's an exhausting experience of leadership that I think probably a lot of people listening or you know business owners or parents understand what it's like to try and just convince people to follow you by talking louder. It, it rarely works. Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's, that's probably a better people, way of putting it. You know, um, it, it's funny because people choose, people have a choice. We have free will. Autonomy is one of the top drivers of human motivation. And so the very best leaders are able to share that compelling vision to, and, and to create cultures where people feel high levels of connection, where they feel like they belong, and where they feel like what they do matters. They feel like it's significant. And so when you understand purpose and belonging, meaning and connection, and you're able to create an environment that, that delivers that for people, it's, it's crazy. But like you can't tell somebody they belong. and Like they got to feel that. You yeah, know what I mean? No, they got to feel that connection. You can't. You can't, you, you can share why what the person does matters, right? And the difference in impact it's making, but unless they buy into it emotionally, it doesn't matter to them. It matters to you. And we've got to do things that, that create an environment where it matters to our people, Yeah, where they're voluntarily enrolling because that's what they want to do. And then we can't miss this. The people don't want to just be on a great team. They want to be part of what makes the team great. Yeah. They don't have to get the game winning hit, right? Yeah. They don't have to be the lead in the ballet. Okay. But they, they got to understand and know 
how they're significant. And I hear a lot of talk about the difference in generations, you know, your silent generation, your boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Y, Gen Z. They need that purpose and connection more, more than ever. Mm. And when we get that right, this is an incredible generation of innovative people who can become very connected, can become owners within organizations. And too often, because of our own failure and our own knowledge and understanding of how to lead them, we point and blame them and compare them. Yeah. And and what we've got to look to do, because once we do that, then we've lost. Yeah. We've got to figure out where is their light and how do we empower, inspire, and connect with them and really elevate them and put them in a position in a position to reach their full potential. Yeah. I mean, you, you had lazy people in the silent generation and the boomers and gen and like that that's no different, right? Yeah. You, when we pick the people that serve on our team, it's one of the most important things we do. There are plenty of purpose-driven people, of hard workers, yeah. uh, of people that are willing to to put that effort in. We just one got to identify them. And to create the environment, we can't lead them the way the boomers needed led or Gen X needed. We need to lead them in the way they need to be led. Yeah. And that that's hard work. Yeah. You're talking you're talking about making sure that we don't just create some leadership pipeline that we try and push everyone through. But we're really trying to act as a, a shepherd or a coach on an individual level with the people we're leading. Well, and I think about the experience you're creating here, Pastor, mm. something you said earlier, I think, drives home this point. You have a couple services. One is more traditional with the organ. Mm-hmm. The other one is a lure, new, little newer edge, yeah. right? Where you're playing music and you have guitars, potentially drums, and you're playing newer music. The message you're sending is the same. Yep. The experience you're delivering is customized for the congregation right for their experience and we have to customize our leadership for the individual members of our team and then collectively how does that work yeah 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 and it's in that 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 truly is an act of love isn't it you know like it's it's truly showing that person that i i care about you enough to uh speak to you in a language that you can receive you know, well, it is, and it's, it's a shift, right? You know, leadership isn't about power and control. It's about service and empowerment. Leadership is, isn't about status. It's not about fame. It's not about making decisions. It's not about always being right. It's not about always going first, right? Leadership is about the ability to rally people around an emotional connection to a vision, to a better way, to a better future, to a better organization and doing that in a way that we're helping people go from where they are to where they want to be. The problem is a lot of the bosses I know are trying to get people to go from where they are to where the boss wants them to be. Yeah. And, and there's a big disconnect and there's a big difference. And I often say why we lead directly turns into how we lead. And so if my leadership is geared to get you to do what I want you to do, that's going to show in my leadership. That's going to show on my words, my body language, my tone, my decisions, my interactions. But if I'm leading you to help get you where you want to be, 
yeah. and you've chosen to be here on your own free will, that is also going to be reflected in my words, body language, tone, actions, decision making. Right. And people can see and people can feel that. Yeah. No, that's so good. And I, I, I appreciate that uh, reminder um, that it's not about trying to lead people to where we want them to be. Um, and that is a, that's an easy trap for so many of us to fall into, whether it's, uh, the way I'm trying to communicate with my kids <laughs> or, or my wife, um, or even just, uh, in communicating with, you know, any of the teams I lead or the groups of friends that I'm trying to organize a, a cookout together with, you know, things like that. Um, that, that applies across all of life is, is the, why you lead shows up and how you lead. Yeah. Amen. Mm. Good words on that. Well, as we're coming to a close, I want to talk a little bit about your perspective here as someone who's lived here for um, as long as you have, you know, almost 30 years now, as you have lived and worked here in the Sauk Valley, what are things that you think are still missing in this area? Or or if you could uh, snap your fingers and change something, what what would you change uh, to make this a a better place in your perspective or for the people who live here? So I'd like to start by just saying the Sauk Valley is an amazing area filled with incredible human beings. And, you know, I think if I could change one thing, it would be the mindset of people from each of the communities. Mm. We are not in competition with each other. When we recognize that when good things happen in Sterling, it's good for Rock Falls and Dixon and Morrison and Oregon and Polo and Amboy and, and the list going on, Profits Town. Yeah. That it's good for the region. Yeah. And so how do we form more of a collaborative mindset to really market and to to enhance and better the whole region? Because regardless of where, regardless of where the factory and the jobs go, that is a place and an opportunity, especially today where we got cars and people work remote and hybrid and all those other things, that's opportunity, you know? And so I think the, the mindset, the collaboration, we're really one bigger team. We got to do things individually within our own communities, right? Like Dixon's not going to pour money into Sterling's right. infrastructure. Right. But you know, the, 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 the vibrancy of them all, the fact that Marshall's and old Navy and five below are coming over to the old Kmart complex. That's good for the whole region. Yeah. And so we've got to think about how do we capitalize, leverage our strengths? How do we do that collectively? How do we move things forward collectively? <laughs> And, and then it's this huge, huge opportunity for us as individual communities to leverage some of those things as well and continue to take it to the next level. So I think from a leadership side, since that's really what we've been talking about, that um, that, that is the greatest opportunity for us to shift that mindset and to, to see the advantages of that. I think that's good. And uh, as we get invaded right now by my kids in the secret podcast studio that is not so secret because it's got an open door that they can get into. Um, as you now think of the things that get you excited or give you joy about this area, what gives you uh, hope about living here in the Sock Valley? Man, I, you know, what's funny is I'm, I'm just full of hope for the Sock Valley. You know, there, there's a, um, 
all the all the experts are talking about this exodus to the exurbs, right? You had like the city of Chicago and the suburbs. Well, we're the exurbs, mm. and we can offer an incredible quality of life with low crime rates, lower cost of living, lots of opportunity, good access to education for our kids because of the infra- infrastructure. I mean, if you're not finding what you want in your local community, which you just got to look around, there's all kinds of amazing things happening that we can do with our kids as adults, be food, entertainment, experience things. I mean, we're, you know, right down the road, you can hop in your car right down the road to the quad cities or up to Rockford or into the suburbs if you want that experience. So I think we're just perfectly located. You know, we've got Interstate 88, we've got the river, we've got all these incredible parks. I mean, our limit is our vision. Mm. Right. Our limit is our vision. And so there's some challenges in the region. I think one of the biggest challenges facing, you know, I mean, this, the, the country right now is housing. Right. So yeah. we've got to address and tackle those things. But we are so perfectly located here and we've got incredible people. So our only limitation is our vision. Mm, that's good. That's good. Well, as we close, um, if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about uh, your leadership podcast or ways that they could hear from you on your wisdom on a myriad of subjects, how would you want people to connect with you or point them to find some resources? Awesome. Yeah. So I appreciate that opportunity. So the Leadership Excellence podcast is a podcast that I've hosted for the last four years. Uh, We have somewhere around 90 episodes the new episodes don't come out as fast as they used to because it's busy, um, but I'm still recording episodes from time to time and releasing new episodes. But we've got leaders from all over the world, from all kinds of different industries, taking on easy topics, but taking on really hard topics. And so that's a great resource, I think. If people want to connect with me, LinkedIn is the best is the best place. You know, our leadership excellence community on LinkedIn now is, um, you know, almost 60,000 people. And so I try to share content at least once a week, once every 10 days there. Um, I kind of had a reset on, I just was burning, you know, both ends too much. So I, yeah. I've cut back a lot, but there's a ton of free content and things there and can connect. And then my website, dannylangloss.com, that has a host of different things you can get to the podcaster if you want to, or you can listen to that anywhere um, that you listen to podcasts. Um, we've got speaker video, different types of resources and things, blogs and those kinds of things. So that, that'd be the best way if people are looking for some additional resources or some additional look into, to, you know, my perspective on leadership and, and what we're sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us today, Danny. Pastor, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Absolutely. Well, until next time on the Sock Valley Spotlight, I'm your host, Drew Williams, and let's keep finding the beauty of this place that we call home. Home.